Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician, Dr. Robert Jackson, with his wife, Carlotta, and daughter, Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in. Welcome to More Than Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Jackson. And I am Carlotta Jackson, his wife, on the show with him today. And thank you, Miss Jackson. I'm delighted to have you with me. And we're going to share with you biblical insights and stories from the country doctor's rusty, dusty scrapbook. Yes, we want to talk about Roe v. Wade today and our response to all of the questions going around on social media, as well as the overturning, or rather, the turning back to the states, decisions regarding abortion by the recent Supreme Court decision on June 24th, a decision that we didn't think we would see in our lifetime, right, baby? No, I sure didn't. I, I prayed about this for 49 years, and I was delighted to see that finally a Supreme Court made a decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade and send it back to the states. Yes, so it's now in the state's hands, and that is why we are going to Columbia tomorrow to speak before the ad hoc committee you and Hannah are while I babysit. But we wanted Hannah to go and represent her generation, if at all possible. So my other daughter and I are making it possible for her to attend. So we will be going to Columbia to the ad hoc committee tomorrow, and we will be praying about what is going to happen in our own South Carolina legislature regarding the abortion laws. Well, um, Ms. Jackson, we have a whole host of questions here that have been generated uh, on the Internet, so let's dive into some of those questions, and we'll kind of discuss them one at a time. Well, the first question I want to ask you, Robert, is what was your initial thought when Roe v. Wade was overturned when you heard? What was your initial feelings? Well, to be honest, it was mixed emotions. Of course, I was delighted. I was delighted by their decision, delighted that there was finally a a Supreme Court with six justices that were uh, God-fearing and right-thinking that would uh, return the decision to the states. And, And honestly, it's really a state's rights decision. It's not so much a a decision about the abortion issue as much as it is a decision about states' rights. Because basically what they've done is determined that this issue was not uh, a, a, an appropriate decision for a Supreme Court, but it's a decision that should be rightfully determined by each individual state. Now, I've heard you say you wish they had just outlawed abortion outright, right? Well, I believe if they had looked at it as it should have been considered as a a personhood decision, according to the 14th Amendment, and they should have looked at it and said the unborn child is a person. Just like they did black people. That's exactly right. They determined that that black folks in America have have the status of a person, and uh, their rights were restored to them equal to white folks, and didn't send it to the states for the states to decide that issue. That's right. And I believe that unborn children have the same status as born citizens. And if the Supreme Court really should have looked at that and said, you don't need to send this to the states, they should have just said that unborn citizens have the same rights as born citizens and been done with it. But that was not the decision they made. So now it's back to the states, and there'll be 50 
individual battles in 50 individual states. Now, as far as my mixed emotions, I was also grieved. I was grieved that 60 million unborn children have died by abortion, at least 60 million that we know of. That's right. And that just, I know it grieves the great heart of God as He looks over the ramparts of heaven and He sees the blood of innocent children running in the streets in America. And it, it, it breaks my heart, Miss Carlotta. It grieves my heart that it's taken us this long to come to our senses. And in South Carolina, they still are dying. It's still happening. And, it, you know, even though the Supreme Court has made this decision, the abortion clinics are wide open in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, it's going to take our legislators months to come to grips with the issue. And it remains to be seen how stringent an abortion limitation will be passed in our state and whether or not it will actually close the abortion clinics. So all of that's still up in the air. So let's go to some of the other questions that we wanted to address. This story has been floating around social media. A woman walked into an ER with an ectopic pregnancy. She lived in a state with trigger laws. She had to wait nine hours while her doctor consulted her lawyer, and she almost died. The question, did pro-lifers actually consider the ramifications of this event? Well, here's my response. Uh, My initial response is that, number one, this story isn't true. Or the ER physician doesn't have the good sense that God gave a billy goat. Because you see, an ectopic pregnancy occurs inside the fallopian tube rather than in the uterus. An ectopic pregnancy is a life-threatening obstetric emergency. The baby will always die because he or she cannot survive outside the uterus. Although I'm sure some researchers somewhere are trying in some lab to find a medical technology that has not yet been developed to preserve a pregnancy outside the womb. That has not yet occurred. If diagnosed early by ultrasound, ectopic pregnancies are treated with methotrexate in order to save the mother's life. But it will cause the loss of the baby and the preservation of the fallopian tube. All ectopic pregnancies will end in the rupture of the fallopian tube if not treated early enough, which will then be followed by severe hemorrhage, and it will require immediate surgical removal. Any delay once rupture of the tube has occurred and bleeding has ensued can result in the death of the mother. Any ER physician who would delay intervention to consult for hours with a lawyer is risking the life of the mother and his medical license. The intent here is not to kill the baby, because the baby will certainly die. The key word here is intent. No one is intending to kill a viable baby. The reversal of Roe v. Wade did not change how any physician should treat an ectopic pregnancy. So another statement that's been going around in social media. I'm pro-Teresa, who hemorrhaged due to a placental abruption, causing her parents, spouse, and children to have to make the impossible decision on whether to save her or her unborn child, or this one. My biggest concern about the overturn is if states criminalize abortion. I can't help but think of the women who do need an abortion because she may not survive the pregnancy 
and may not be able to deliver the baby. If it's criminalized, the doctor who recommends termination could lose their license or jail time, even if it is for the safety of the mother. I just don't want to see states taking this so far out that it could harm women's health. Is it really harming women's health, Robert? Well, for this and other life-threatening issues concerning the mother's health, the goal here is to maintain the pregnancy as long as possible. Then to deliver the baby with the intent to save the baby's life and the mother's life. If the baby is delivered too early to survive per current medical science, this is not going to be penalized. This is not an abortion where the intent is to kill the baby by any variety of methods, such as tearing limb from limb or uh, a chemical burning while still in the mother's womb. Again, the key word is intent. It does not have to be an either-or situation. Save the baby or the mother. Physicians should work to save both in the case of placental abruption. The solution is simple. Deliver the baby by C-section and care for the mother and baby, especially since the majority of placental abruptions are third trimester events, and in that case, the baby is usually progressed far enough that the baby will survive outside the womb. Right. And you tell stories like this in your book, right? I do. I would refer the listeners to my book, The Family Doctor Speaks, The Truth About Life, and many of the scenarios that we're discussing today are discussed at length in my book. So here's another one. I'm pro-Becky, who found out at her 20-week anatomy scan that the infant she had been so excited to bring into this world had developed without life-sustaining organs. Many women have had just such an ultrasound that showed that their baby had some problems. What do you say? No one knows for sure the quality of life that anyone will have in advance. Many babies with congenital anomalies will die at birth or shortly thereafter. That precious little baby's abbreviated life is entirely in God's hands. It is not for us to arrogate to ourselves the right to kill an unborn human being just because they have physical handicaps. We would not kill a born human being with physical handicaps. So why would we kill an innocent, unborn citizen that has predetermined handicaps? Physically challenged children and adults become the professors and teachers of us all. And they teach us what it means to have compassion and to serve another human being. You Christian folks out there, You do want to be like Jesus, don't you? You know the hymn that we sing? More like the Master I would ever be. More of His mercy. More humility. You understand fully that when we deal and minister to folks with physical handicaps, that we have to be a servant to them. And in being a servant to them, we become more like Jesus. Trust me, I understand that because my family has two special needs boys who have taught us all to be more like 
the master. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And when you and I serve special needs folks in our community, in our church or in our home, it teaches us to be a servant and to be more like the master. Just ask any Jackson if they would send Thomas or John Richard back, would we? No, we would never send them back. Thomas is downs. John Richard has, well, who knows what. He has an undiagnosed genetic issue. And both of these boys are precious in the life of our family. And if anyone would suggest to us that their their lives are not worth living, well, we might just have to give that person a righteous fat lip. That's right. You know? Our lives have been richer because of them. All right. So I'm pro-Susan, who was sexually assaulted on her way home from work, only to come to the horrific realization that her assailant planted his seed in her when she got a positive pregnancy test result a month later. And then here is a similar one. And I'm pro-little Kathy, who had her innocence ripped away from her by someone she should have been able to trust, and her 11-year-old body isn't mature enough to bear the consequence of that betrayal. So what do you have to say to these tough situations? First of all, these are just a small percent of all abortions, right? Very, very small percent. Ninety-eight percent of abortions are what the industry calls convenience abortions. Less than two percent are what we call the hard cases, rape, incest, and handicapped children. And so nationwide... Out of a million abortions per year, about 50,000 of a million are the hard cases, rape, incest, handicapped children, or the life of the mother, as they call it. And so the vast majority of abortions are for birth control, convenience. The mother just simply does not want to be pregnant at that time. It's an embarrassment. It's an unwed pregnancy. She has a college scholarship in the offering. Uh, Her husband or boyfriend has abandoned her. She doesn't have insurance. All of those are difficult circumstances. But my contention is that there's no circumstance, no matter how difficult, that justifies the killing of an innocent, unborn human being. That's right. Now, let's, let's talk about rape and incest. Although it is rare, rape does occur. I have a friend from Orangeburg, South Carolina. Her name is Rose, and I met her about a year and a half ago. And her uh, so-called boyfriend sexually assaulted her, and she became pregnant by that. And her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, begged and pled with her to have uh, an abortion. And she eventually... Uh, pressed charges against the man because of the sexual assault. He was arrested. She appeared before a judge, and uh, she told the judge, she said, I I was confronted by my uh, assailant. He begged and pled with me to have an abortion because he wanted me to kill the evidence of his crime. Later, the judge asked her, why did you not obtain an abortion? This uh, this baby... Uh, was, quote, the devil's spawn, is what the judge said. I mean, that's an awful way to put it, but that's what the judge said. And she pointed her finger at the judge, and she said to the judge, 
She said, it is not my responsibility to kill my unborn child. She said, it's your responsibility to put a rapist in prison. And for you see, what crime has the unborn child committed? And it's a twisted logic that would kill the unborn child for the misdeed of one of the parents. And you see, it's only in third world countries, in in tin foil hat dictatorships, that we kill a child for the crime of one of the parents. And this is America. People don't go to prison and they're not uh, punished with capital punishment for the misdeed or the crime of one of their parents. And the unborn child conceived by rape or incest should not be put to death for the crime of a parent. Right. We would recommend two books by David Reardon, Teresa Burke. One is Victims and Victors Speaking Out About Their Pregnancies, Abortions, and Children Resulting from Sexual Assault. And then the other one, Forbidden Grief, The Unspoken Pain of Abortion, because they both talk about the numbers of pregnancies from rape, and they talk about the emotions that these women go through and how they many of them don't want to have abortions for the reasons that you talked about. That's right. Those books are very revealing, and they're the largest survey in existence of women who have conceived as a result of rape or incest, and the emotional consequences and the thinking of these women uh, this ever been conducted. It's a very re- these books are very revealing. Yes. So here's another story, Robert. I'm pro-Melissa, who is working two jobs just to make ends meet and who has to choose between bringing another child into poverty or feeding the children she already has because her spouse walked out on her. Or I'm pro-Brittany, who realizes that she is in no way financially, emotionally, or physically able to raise a child. And then there's I'm pro-Lindsay, who lost her virginity in her sophomore year with a broken condom and now has to choose whether to be a teenage mom or just a teenager. Well, my response to that is I am pro-Melissa, but I'm also pro-Melissa's baby. I'm pro-Brittany and pro-Lindsay, but I'm also pro-Brittany and pro-Lindsay's baby. I mean, who represents their unborn child? Who's in favor of the life of their unborn child? I'm certain that the circumstances of their life is somewhat difficult, but their circumstances should not allow the killing of an unborn child. Now, I'm a physician, and I have lots of patients who are elderly who have difficult circumstances, but we don't kill older folks because the circumstances of their life are difficult. Just a few years ago, one of my patients killed his mother and father, who were also my patients, because they lived in constant pain. That was a euthanasia. But that patient of mine was charged with a double murder, a double homicide. He might have thought he was doing his parents a favor, but in the eyes of the law, he was a murderer. We cannot kill unborn children just because the life of the mother is difficult or desperate. And I understand Melissa and Brittany's and Lindsay's circumstances may be difficult, but we cannot solve a social dilemma with murder. murder. Exactly right. We're very sensitive to the plight of single moms, abandoned moms, and unwed mothers. 
But we're also pro-unborn child. Who looks out for the right to life of the unborn baby? There's no circumstance, Miss Carlotta, no matter how desperate, that justifies the killing of innocent, unborn human beings who are created in the image of God, who are special in the economy of God, one for whom the very Son of God died on a cruel Roman cross. Many couples are waiting to adopt babies born to unwed or married mothers, whether they're young and financial difficulties are bad relationships. And we believe laws should be made to allow this to occur cheaply and safely. And guess what? Money that once went to Planned Parenthood can go now towards the foster care system and adoptions. You're right. And without abortion on demand, young couples hopefully will think twice before having premarital sex. Abortion on demand has taken away the responsibility of having sex for both young people and adults. Churches and crisis pregnancy centers have been helping, and every single one that we know of are preparing themselves to help more. The testimonies of loving help abound. But let's face it, so do the heart-wrenching stories of the consequences of sexual promiscuity. Okay, Robert, so we need to wrap this up. And I know that we want to answer the question, why can't some people see what we see? What is the issue here? Why, why, is there, why is it so hard to see that this is a baby? It is a baby that is a separate body from the mother. And, you know, we are hearing my body, my choice. Well, it's, what's inside your womb is really not your body. And so why don't you respond to that? Well, honestly, Ms. Carlotta, it's not an issue of information or logic or intellect. If that were so, the, the introduction of the ultrasound machine would have solved this issue a long time ago. That's right. Because the ultrasound is a window to the womb. It allows us to see the, the unborn child in the mother's womb as early as uh, six or eight weeks of, of gestation, and you can honestly see that that's a human being. That's a little baby growing in the mother's womb. Um, so what's wrong with the doctors, lawyers, judges, and Indian chiefs in our society that they can't see clearly what you and I can see? Well, let me tell you a story that illustrates my point. And my point is this, is it's really a function of spiritual blindness. You know, people are not ignorant, they're not unlearned, and they're not uneducated. The issue is really one of being able to see spiritually. You know, the Bible says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Neither can he receive them because they're spiritually discerned. And so what I'm saying is this. I, I had a fellow come to my office some years ago who had just moved to South Carolina from Alaska. And I was talking to him in my office, and I got to meet him and, and greet him, and we were talking. And in the process of our conversation, he honestly said to me that he'd been an outlaw all of his life. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he told me that he'd been arrested and put in prison in 26 states in the course of his life that he ended up in, uh, in Sparks or Reno, Nevada, and he was a, a pit boss in a casino, and then he graduated to managing five different uh, 
casinos and uh, five restaurants and whatnot. And then he ended up being run out of town because he embezzled money and went on from there. But he, he just had a long life of being being a criminal. And anyway, I got to talking with him, shared the gospel with him, and over a few days' time, he became a believer. Shortly after that, I invited him to go to a pro-life meeting with me, and we were riding in a church van with a bunch of Christian folks, and, I, and he starts laughing out loud. So I asked him, Frank, what's, what are you laughing about? And he said, if all my old friends could just see me now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, all my life, I thought that abortion was the best thing that ever happened for women. And now I ha- here I am going to a pro-life rally with a bunch of fundamentalist Christians. And he started laughing again. Now, what had happened in Frank's life? For you see, I hadn't talked to him at all about the abortion issue or pro-life or anything. The only thing that had happened to him is he'd become a Christian. He'd been transferred by God from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's right. And the Spirit of God had opened his eyes, you see. He now could see the light. And he went from thinking abortion was the best thing that could happen for women to going to a pro-life rally with a bunch of fundamentalist Christians, and he was excited about going. Without any debate or discussion, Frank had become a pro-life Christian. And the reason I share that story is so that our our listening audience would understand that evangelism is fundamental to everything that we do in the pro-life movement. All of us have a know-it-all brother-in-law or backdoor neighbor who thinks that abortion is a wonderful thing for women. And, And no amount of debate or logic is going to change his mind. Even showing him an ultrasound of an unborn child in the mother's womb is not going to change his mind. The only thing that will change his mind whether he's your brother-in-law or a judge or a doctor or a legislator, is for the Spirit of God to open his mind and show him the truth. And that's why you must share with him the gospel message. You see, it's the gospel that changes people's hearts and minds. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. My friend, you give your backdoor neighbor Jesus. You give your doctor, Jesus. You give your legislator, Jesus. And just like Frank, they will suddenly one day hit their forehead with the back of their hand and say, Oh, oh, now I see. And they will understand what you've been trying to tell them for years without any debate or logic or discussion or even showing them an ultrasound of a little baby in the mother's womb. There's one more question you want to answer, Robert, and that is, what's the bottom line? The bottom line, Miss Carlotta, is the answer to one question. What grows in the mother's womb? Is it a potential human being or a human being with enormous potential created in the image of God? If it is a potential human being, then an abortion procedure has no more moral significance than removing a diseased gallbladder or infected appendix. However, if that which grows in the mother's womb is a human being created in the image of God and special in the economy of God, then none of us should lay our head on a pillow any night 
until we have satisfied our conscience that we have done all within our personal resources to put an end to what amounts to the wholesale slaughter of innocent, unborn human beings. Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information about the Jackson Family Ministry, Dr. Jackson's books, or to schedule a speaking engagement, go to their Facebook page, Instagram, or their webpage at jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production at bobsloan.com.